member. Um, just recently retired from the uh, OSU Libraries as Assistant Director of Special Collections, and also for a number of years as the University Archivist. And it's in this position where he acquired so much knowledge for the book that he's going to talk about and read from today, which is entitled The Ohio State University and the Illustrated uh, History. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, to commence this uh, read aloud, I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about the purpose, my goals in, uh, in writing the book. And hopefully, uh, if you uh, read the book, you be in a position to assess uh, how well I've uh, met those objectives. First, I wanted a, uh, uh, to be reasonably comprehensive without being encyclopedic. And uh, uh, so the book does cover from 1862 to 2009. Uh, I, unlike other histories, in fact, when I began this project, I looked at about 15, 20 uh, recently published, recently about six years ago, uh, published histories and didn't like any of them. Uh, I wanted a book, I, I decided that I wanted a book that was more topical in, uh, in organization. And uh, in fact, uh, that even leads me to my, uh, my first uh, uh, read aloud. In writing this book, I decided to look at the history of the university as if it were a prison that has many sides. If I were to ask people what aspect of the university is most important to them, I know that I would receive many different answers. Some would say it's the physical environment, the buildings and places on the campus. Certainly we're in a historic room this afternoon. Others would point to its academic life, its teaching and research. Many would argue for the social life, the student experience outside the classroom. No doubt, more than a few, uh, and this was written before the season, uh, would claim that athletics uh, <laughs> and, and, and traditions uh, make the university what it is. If the university has importance in many ways, then its history should reflect its multiple sides and how they came into being. Another objective that I had in the book was that I wanted it to be well illustrated. Uh, the university archives, uh, in fact, uh, Michelle Drobik here knows every, uh, where every photograph is, right, Michelle? Uh, uh, of uh, a million and a half uh, or so uh, uh, photographs. So I had ample opportunities uh, to, to illustrate the, uh, the work. And in fact, there are some 300 uh, uh, photographs in this book. I wanted this book to be for the general audience general audience defined as students, faculty, staff, uh, alumni. The last book that was uh, done, uh, that was a comprehensive history of the university, was published in 1952. Uh, not only was it, uh, it significantly out of date, but it really is, uh, this is the James Pollard book, History of Ohio State University. Uh, it really is more intended as a work of reference than it is as a, uh, uh, as a work that is intended to be read uh, cover to cover. Uh, the book has a context. I mentioned to James uh, Pollard. Since the uh, administration of President uh, Howard Beavis, 1940 to 1956, I wasn't here then, uh, there has been an official history uh, of every uh, OSU president. Uh, in fact, there is one that's uh, soon to be impressed now uh, that's the history of the Karen Holbrook years by Chris Sacker. But as I said at the beginning, the last one volume, Comprehensive History, was done in 1952. All the ones that have been done about presidential administrations are really uh, bound, if you will, by the length of the, uh, uh, the administration. Uh, Gordon Gee, no doubt, will have a, uh, 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 there was one written by uh, uh, Malcolm Barraway in the first few years, and no doubt uh, there will be another book uh, about his 
uh, his second administration. So that being said, uh, I'd like to uh, uh, now do some uh, return to the individual chapters. I'll make some remarks uh, about individual uh, chapters, and then I'll do a, a reading or two uh, from, uh, from each chapter. Uh, chapter one is uh, uh, only one of two that doesn't begin with the present. Most of the chapters begin uh, with the, uh, the present and then explain uh, the, uh, um, uh, the process, the events, the activity, the major activities that led to the present. So uh, this one, uh, not surprisingly, uh, is really quite uh, traditional. It begins as, uh, it concerns the founding of the university, uh, 1862, which was actually the, uh, uh, the, the Morrill Act. Uh, we uh, have our charter in, uh, in 1870. And I ended the chapter in 1878, uh, because that was the year of the uh, uh, first uh, graduation. It was also the year the university changed its name from the Ohio Agricultural and Mechanical College to the Ohio State University. There are a number of themes in that uh, first chapter. Uh, one is the controversies. In, in hindsight, from the perspective of today, it seems remarkable that, uh, that having a land-grant university could be as controversial as it was in the, uh, in the 1860s and 1870s. Certainly the, very, uh, the, the Moral Act itself begged uh, and challenged people uh, about whether there should be a role in, of the federal government in education. Actually, uh, looking at the uh, electoral process, uh, there are some uh, candidates who uh, continue to uh, uh, stumble about that. Uh, there were, uh, it was a highly political, uh, the Moral Act was a highly political accomplishment. It was only accomplished uh, in 1862 during the Civil War when the Southern Democrats, who had objected to this intrusion of the federal government into higher education, uh, uh, left, seceded, if you will, uh, and the Republican-dominated Congress passed it and Abraham Lincoln signed it. That being said, uh, 1862, uh, the university isn't established until 1870. Why so late? Because of a number of controversies. Uh, a major one that's depicted in chapter one was whether there was, was going to be one or more institutions in Ohio. The, the Morrill Act did not require that there be a uh, special institution in the state to uh, receive the funds of money sold in the West the, uh, the Moral Land Grant Act to support institutions that had special education in agriculture and engineering. In fact, the Moral Act uh, basically left it up to the states to decide how they wanted to spend their share of the Moral Land Grant money. And some institutions uh, uh, dispersed the, uh, the land grant money amongst uh, several existing institutions. And certainly in Ohio in 1862, in the 1860s, there were more than 30 institutions of higher education, several of whom were eager to be the recipient of the uh, moral endowment. Uh, I'm speaking specifically of uh, Miami University as well as uh, Ohio University. And so uh, there was considerable debate for years as to whether there should be one single institution or, a, uh, uh, or multiple. And in fact, uh, uh, it was decided on one institution uh, and uh, it was the agricultural constituency that insisted that only a new institution could be entrusted with a special mission of agriculture and engineering. Another controversy would be where it would be located. The uh, Canada Act, which accepted the uh, terms of the Morrill Act, and is our, considered our charter document in 1870, uh, simply said that the, uh, uh, that the new institution uh, should be reasonably centrally located uh, without specifying what county. Uh, and so there was a competition amongst several counties to be the site of, the, uh, of this new uh, university. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, Franklin County won out. Uh, each of the counties were expected to bid, if you will, for the uh, privilege of uh, hosting the, uh, uh, the new institution. Uh, 
Franklin County came up with uh, bond money that could be used to, uh, to purchase uh, land. I should have mentioned that one of the stipulations of the Morrill Act was that none of the uh, uh, Morrill Act endowment could be used to, uh, to buy a building, to buy land or to build buildings. So how is this supposed to be accomplished? Well, uh, if you wanted to do this uh, uh, efficiently, one might say, or even on the cheap, uh, you uh, simply uh, move the moral money to, an to another institution. But uh, it was decided here in Ohio that there would be a special institution created, competition amongst counties, and Franklin County uh, was successful in that competition. Another issue was what it should teach and, uh, and when. The Morrill Act uh, specifically said that while the institutions had to teach engineering, uh, agriculture, and also it, it was added, uh, military training was added after all this was the Civil War in 1862, that, uh, uh, that it shouldn't be at the exclusion of other subjects. So the, uh, the emphasis, the, the budgetary emphasis, how many faculty do you hire for which program is, uh, uh, is a point of controversy for the, for the university. And what uh, particularly uh, is throughout the last half of this chapter is the, uh, uh, the extraordinary gap between the aspirations of our founders, the ideals, the visions of our founders, uh, and the reality. This was a struggling institution. So with that uh, uh, rather lengthy introduction, let me read from the book. Here's uh, Thomas Mendenhall talking about the, uh, the first faculty. Then and now, it was difficult to generalize about the faculty. At the 25th anniversary of the founding, Thomas Mendenhall uh, recalled that they shared a common vision about a new education. As Mendenhall described it, this new education was one in which science should have a chair and in which observation and equipment should displace time-honored methods of instruction, not only with scientific subjects, but with all, with all others as well. A small number of American colleges and universities were turning their faces in this direction, including very naturally the newly created institutions which owe their existence to the Land Grant Act of 1862. The men who were chosen to constitute the first faculty of the Ohio Agriculture Mechanical College were already known to be warm advocates of the new education, and their selection was doubtless due in large measure to, the, to this fact. They were united in their enthusiasm for the work and an overwhelming determination to win success. So it was not simply, as Mendenhall said, it was not simply uh, that this was a new program. This is a new way of education, one that was based much more on uh, observation and experimentation than simply rote memory, uh, which had been the characteristic of, uh, of, of traditional classical institutions. Continuing in this uh, uh, chapter, and I do like, uh, do, did like to quote as much as I could uh, from, uh, from others, the inaugurational address of uh, President Edward Orton uh, was too lengthy to, uh, to quote as a whole. It's a, it's a remarkable work. Uh, Edward Orton uh, not only was president, but he was also a geologist. Uh, and let me read the, uh, the, uh, the portion. The inauguration of President Orton did not take place until January 8, 1874, more than three months after classes began, and the setting was the Ohio Senate Chamber, not University Hall. Edward Orton presented his views on the educational objectives of the new college. In doing so, Orton voiced themes that would continue as light motifs into the present. One was the goal to provide access to higher education for many at a time when tuition at private colleges made it inaccessible to all but the wealthy few. As he put it, uh, quote, to the mass of the industrial classes of the state, by industrial he really meant anybody who worked for a living. Uh, uh, the privileges of Harvard, Yale, or Vassar are practically as inaccessible as those of Cambridge or Heidelberg. Another theme of his uh, address was the breadth of educational uh, opportunity. In Orton's words, quote, the farmers or mechanics' sons is not obligated, is not obliged to sign away his liberty when he enters the doors of this institution. If, when he comes to himself under the genial influences of culture, he finds capacity and aptitude for serving the world uh, best in law, theology, or medicine, 
he is violating no obligation exposed or implied by using the discipline and knowledge here attained as an equipment uh, for any one of these professions. In other words, a cobbler's, the son of a cobbler doesn't have to remain the son of a cobbler. Finally, Wharton voiced the views of his faculty that education at the new land-grant institution would be different, stressing observation and the practical application of knowledge. Uh, rather than rely on memory and reading alone, this confers, of course, what Mendenhall said, uh, the student must be brought face-to-face -face as possible with the facts and principles with which he deals, his own eye must see and not others. In contrast, the traditional teaching that depended upon memory and mental drill, Orton declared that land-grant colleges must teach, quote, in a truly scientific way, by educate, uh, by induction, by experiment, instead of the dogmatic method which so largely prevailed hitherto. In fact, uh, uh, Orton would refer in the, the uh, in this inaugural address uh, to the uh, uh, to the moral land grant uh, being uh, a, a beginning the beginning of a new epoch, uh, and he would uh, again the geologist coming up at him would say that uh, uh, even as sometimes fossils help geologists identify different eras. So anthropologists in the future, or historians in the future, would see the land grant as a new epoch uh, in the history of higher education in the United States. So much for the beginning. Uh, chapter two concerns the presence. Uh, I uh, didn't have, I felt uh, obligated to write this chapter. It wasn't, a, it wasn't fun writing it, but uh, uh, nevertheless, presidents uh, are important to the history of our university. Uh, the, uh, uh, the reason I didn't have a great deal of fun writing was simply because uh, so much of it is uh, you know, uh, biographical vignettes. Uh, but uh, uh, in any case, um, presidents are important to the history of the university. We have buildings named after presidents. In recent times, presidents uh, set the agenda. Uh, and. Uh, uh, the, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the themes of this, uh, uh, this chapter. One of the, I mentioned the biographical vignettes. Uh, in the beginning of the chapter is in fact an overview of the development of the office. Uh, it's really not until 1909 when William Oxley Thompson, for whom this uh, library is named, uh, has the title of uh, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the University. The, the trustees actually rewrote their bylaws. Uh, prior to that time, uh, presidents uh, were not chief executives. In fact, uh, uh, the first two presidents uh, did not sit uh, with the Board of Trustees at their meetings. Uh, they were considered the uh, uh, first amongst the faculty, uh, but not chief executives. All that changed with William Oxley Thompson. But I was, uh, uh, there's a, uh, uh, an enjoyable quote at the beginning of the, uh, the book from uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, who had the misfortune of chairing a search committee for a uh, president. And uh, let me give you some of his, uh, his words. Uh, we are looking for a man of fine appearance, of commanding presence, one who will impress the public. He must be a fine speaker of public assemblies. He must be uh, a great scholar and a great teacher. He must be a preacher. Also, as some think, he must be a man of winning manners. He must have tact so that he could get along with and govern the faculty. He must be popular with the students. He must also be a man of business training, a man of affairs, and he must be a great administrator. Gentlemen, there is no such man. <laughs> More than 100 years later, a modern search committee could add several requirements to this already lengthy list. The idea of candidate should have a talent for courting private donors, uh, for representing the university to governmental agencies, for advancing cultural and racial diversity, uh, and for inspiring winning athletic programs which recruit young people who excel as athletes, students, and citizens. Uh, finally, a president should be equally impressive in many settings uh, from commencements to small parties. Uh, so uh, anyway, each uh, uh, 
the rest of the chapter uh, gives a biographical vignette about each president and the major issues and challenges that, uh, that, they, uh, that they face. Chapter three, I had uh, more fun uh, uh, writing about, uh, and that because it involves some decision making, on, more decision making on my part. While the university, of course, has changed much in its uh, its history, the pace of change has not always been the same, and so I designated a chapter in which I uh, point to five turning points, which I consider to be times at which the pace of change accelerated on this campus. You can uh, challenge, debate uh, those turning points. I wanted to keep it to a small number, five, uh, simply because you know, chapters can only be so many pages in length. Uh, and uh, five uh, liberated me or enabled me to, uh, uh, to, to write a decent uh, chapter. Uh, anyway, my five, when you read your book. Uh, turning points are important for understanding the history of OSU. A handful of times or events have quickened the pace of change on the campus and deserve special attention. Five pivotal events, and I go into these in some detail in the book, are uh, Trustee Rutherford B. Hayes' resolution of a rift between agricultural leaders in Ohio in 1887. I said at the beginning, that one of the reasons why we have, uh, we are here, why the Morrill Act uh, funds went to one institution was because of agriculture. Powerful constituency in the state, okay? The agricultural constituency, by the record, was not happy with the university dropping agriculture uh, from its name. Uh, and so uh, there is, that's important because one of the aspirations of the university in this period is a uh, uh, funding from the state for, to support higher education. There was no tradition, no precedent in, uh, for a regular subsidy from the state of Ohio for universities that are chartered by the state, even so-called public ones. So, but to get that, to get that subsidy requires legislative support. And having spurned, not, certainly not deliberately, uh, agriculture, it was extremely difficult. Which leads me to a related second turning point, the Heisel Act of 1891. Now when this was passed, uh, volume one of the University History uh, series says, uh, this is the official University History series, uh, says, uh, quote, the name of Heisel shall live forever. Now, I'm not aware of any Heisel Hall, Heisel Street, uh, but Heisel was still important because the Heisel Act of 1891 was the first time that the state of Ohio provided an annual tax to support the operating, uh, the operations of the university, uh, namely maintenance, hiring people, hiring faculty, keeping our tuition low, uh, and the Heisel Act was extremely important in establishing that precedent. In fact, it served as our operating subsidy from the state of Ohio until about 1915, when it was replaced by an annual uh, appropriation uh, instead of a tax rate. Uh, World War II uh, transformed this campus uh, in, uh, in its diversity, in its uh, research breadth, uh, its international diversity, and uh, um, really, uh, um, uh, there was no question in my mind that World War II uh, needed to be saved. Also, of course, it was the uh, time in which federal engagement uh, would be significantly intensified because uh, higher education took much credit for the winning of the war, uh, especially with the creation and delivery of the, uh, the atom bomb. Uh, the student demonstrations of 1970. Uh, that changed much on campus, in particular it changed the, uh, uh, the campus in at least two or more ways. Uh, one, much more emphasis on student participation in the, uh, the governance of the university. The university senate is an outgrowth of 
the demonstrations of 1970. University Senate was distinctive because prior to then, uh, the, uh, the, the prior body, uh, the uh, faculty council did not include students. Uh, and uh, uh, much more attention to diversity, to minority groups uh, than had ever been in the past, all the result of 1970. And finally, the event that uh, many of us uh, uh, lived through, uh, the advent of selective admission in 1987. That, uh, that event changed the campus by uh, uh, changing, if you will, the, uh, the difficulty of getting in, uh, the standards uh, for uh, uh, admission process, uh, and made this uh, a university that uh, uh, and moving up in the uh, rankings of U.S. News and Report, uh, World, U.S. News and World Report, which uh, uh, everybody claims to uh, uh, to not pay attention to uh, unless they do well in those rankings. So anyway, uh, that this chapter uh, refers uh, uh, goes into some depth on each one of these uh, uh, events. Chapter four, uh, they did something great. This was the most difficult chapter for me to write. Uh, someone uh, who gave me good, who I relied on for good advice, uh, uh, suggested that I want to do a chapter about uh, uh, distinguished people and alums from the university. And uh, this person suggested I should contact the deans. Uh, and uh, that turned out to be a bit of a disaster uh, because uh, A, the deans had, uh, uh, limited knowledge uh, about their own college histories, uh, and B, the people they really wanted me to write about were their donors. Uh, so uh, this took about two years to write, uh, and uh, because I kept trying different, and originally uh, I finally decided, okay, I'm gonna forget about the, uh, uh, the advice, and I'm gonna create a listing, a database, library, uh, uh, of uh, uh, names of people and to try to spread that uh, over the length of the university history so that I have a, a roughly equal number in different periods of time, representation uh, from different, uh, different groups, uh, different uh, fields, uh, and I, uh, I finally decided, you know, I want to keep this book popular if I can, it's gonna be popular. It's not gonna be popular if it's a tome. So the, uh, it's gotta be a reasonable length. And I decided that you know, I can't write about 50 people. Uh, I need to limit it to 25. Uh, and so that's what I did. Uh, it's, the subtitle is 25 people, not presidents, uh, of the uh, Ohio State University. And I uh, tried to pick a quote or two to lead off each chapter, and I like this one. This is from President Edward Orton, Jr. Uh, commencement Address, March 1928. Go forth, it's a commencement address, mind you. Go forth and take up your stewardship, strong in the will to return to humanity with good interest, all that humanity and nature have given you. Uh, rather fitting in 1928, still very useful today. So these are uh, vignettes, uh, about 25 uh, people, some are faculty, some are alums, some didn't graduate, but uh, certainly were uh, uh, impacted by uh, George Bellis, for example, uh, uh, impacted by their, their university uh, uh, years. Probably the most uh, fun-filled chapter, uh, to write anyway, uh, was about student life. Um, I was uh, interested in the development of student life especially as it became part of institutional culture, as much as student life can. And this was not, there was a great deal of fear at the beginning of the, uh, uh, at the origin, at the beginning of the, uh, beginning years of the university, uh, because many of the faculty, of course, uh, had come from older institutions where student life involved a great deal of conflict between faculty and students uh, and administration and students. And they wanted this new university to be different from the old. And so they approached student life with uh, considerable hesitancy. Students felt differently about the whole matter. Uh, 
But, and this, this quote is from the student yearbook, the Macchio, in 1880, uh, and leaves the chapter. Student life is not as uh, might be supposed by the outsider look, look, outside looker uh, uh, on, a, on a mere routine of reading, recitation, and physical education, of studying the rich old fields of the world, and of research into the mysteries of nature. But with this, there comes the reactionary desire for sports, joviality, and general good times. Because a man works hard in college is no reason uh, why, and Matthew, by the way, was uh, all male at this time, uh, the, 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 the writers, uh, why he should ignore college sports. Because he's tired at the end of the week does not justify him in shirking the duties of a literary society. You cannot afford to neglect them. They are as much part and parcel of your college life as your books and laboratories. All the knowledge of the world gained from books is but a small fraction and will avail you but little compared with the experience of life. Aside from that, you leave out a large factor in your enjoyment here. Uh, no doubt some students would uh, still take this uh, point of view. Uh, and uh, uh, anyway, uh, it was a, a fun uh, chapter for, uh, for me to write. The, uh, um, the presidents, like I said, they had some uh, uh, reservations. The fact they had reservations about it. Uh, the Literary Society is mentioned in the quote. They were, in fact, the first student organizations on campus. Uh, literary societies that kept their own library, uh, more popular uh, reading. But faculty kept track of them. Uh, and at one point, the, uh, 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 in fact, when the first literary society was organized, the president had to be an ex officio member. Uh, so, uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, one, at least on one occasion, perhaps more faculty minutes, uh, faculty warned uh, of the literary societies that their rooms were for the study of literature, not general socializing. Uh, so, uh, uh, and uh, at one point, the uh, uh, students were alarmed because the, uh, uh, they were not allowed to, uh, to dance in, uh, in University Hall. This was out of respect for the, the faculty, out of respect for uh, uh, President, uh, third uh, President uh, uh, William Henry Scott, who was a Methodist minister and uh, opposed to dancing. Uh, for later students were incensed. So uh, a lot of us uh, back and forth. Uh, I want, and I want to read one, uh, one paragraph here. Uh, a seasonal source of friction between OSU officials and students were excesses of enthusiasm during and after football games. Uh, during the Ohio State-Penn State game of 1912, which OSU hosted and was losing badly, OSU complained that the Penn State players were too rough. Uh, <laughs> an OSU freshman, uh, somebody from Toledo actually, uh, climbed a, a goalpost that displayed Penn State's colors and set them ablaze. <laughs> president Thompson, who was in the audience, uh, had to apologize to Penn State's president, who was also in the audience. Uh, uh, another example, in 1954, a victory over Michigan stirred the jubilant crowd not only to charge the goalposts, but also to attack the Michigan band, seizing handsome damaging instruments. Almost regularly, the OSU campus prepares for the excesses that sometimes go with the uh, game against Michigan, excesses caused by both youthful enthusiasm and the consumption of alcohol. Too often, property damage and unauthorized bonfires have followed the game. In recent years, blood drives and other programs have directed youthful energies into more positive activities during Michigan Week. And I, uh, uh, Michigan Week uh, has thankfully changed. When I was uh, first started here, it was a uh, uh, pretty, uh, pretty violent uh, uh, period. How can you write about OSU and not write about athletics? Uh, yes, I wrote about, I wrote a chapter about athletics. My chapter is unusual. Uh, unusual in the sense that there are so many books about individual, uh, about individual sports, uh, football, basketball, uh, or, uh, or biographies uh, of uh, uh, star athletes. I wanted to avoid all that. Uh, but really wanted to focus more on how it was that athletics became such an important part of our institutional culture. The quote that, uh, I have two quotes that begin this chapter. Uh, this is from uh, William Henry Scott, the, the Methodist minister. 
uh, quote, uh, another evil that attends the present system of athletics is its interference with university work. This is especially true of intercollegiate athletics, 1890. Counter that, however, with a vision statement uh, endorsed by the university in 2001. Our intercollegiate athletic programs will routinely rank among the elite few. Uh, so, you know, how does this, uh, how does this uh, happen? Uh, very early on, athletics is strictly a, uh, a student uh, event or uh, engagement. And uh, we'll read this uh, uh, couple of paragraphs here. While student publications such as the Lantern and the Macchio embraced athletics as a virtue, official support developed slowly. Some professors saw athletics as harmless, even useful play, and participated as judges of athletic contests. Some even contributed financially to the Student Athletic Association. Others, however, feared that athletics would distract from and inter even interfere with academics. Uh, in 1890, President Scott, for one, acknowledged the importance of cheerful and hearty physical exercise, such as lawn tennis, uh, but had doubts about football and intercollegiate athletics generally, sports that involved practices during the school week and caused participants to neglect their academic studies were harmful. Quote, uh, we have great confidence in the loyalty and earnestness of our students. Some of the most loyal and earnest are members of the various teams and others are zealous friends and supporters of the association, as the Student Athletic Association. Yet the history of athletics in the Eastern colleges and the manifest tendency of those of Ohio indicate that some limits should be prescribed. Nevertheless, enthusiasm for athletics spread across campuses in Ohio, even as it had sprung from the East originally. During the 1880s and 1890s, OSU competed against their schools as Western Reserve, Case Institute, Worcester, Akron, Oberlin, Otterbein, Kenyon, uh, Ohio Wesleyan, Cincinnati, and Denison. From time to time, presidents voiced concerns about sporting events that involved players who were not students and about profanity, betting, and payments for performance. To regulate competition and to assure propriety, presidents organized the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of Ohio. However, students resisted rules imposed by presidents and faculty. In fact, an editorial in OSU's Lantern declared that it was, quote, hideous, it was hideous in the extreme that faculty should think that they could grant or deny participation in athletics as a privilege to students. Uh, so you see the conflict between the students and the university. The university is quite concerned about the improprieties, about the university getting bad recognition, uh, plus, uh, of course, the interference with, uh, with academics. Things come to a major head when the Student uh, Athletic Association uh, is bankrupt. Uh, and uh, is in such bad state organizationally that they can't even find their institution, their, their constitution. Uh, and at that point, the, uh, the students are told that uh, athletic uh, permission to use the grounds for athletic purposes will only be granted when there is, in fact, an athletic association that represents students but is also controlled by faculty. Uh, that's the beginning of university engagement, uh, official engagement, in athletics, and it's one that would develop uh, uh, into uh, the uh, Western uh, University's membership into the Western Athletic Conference, now known as the uh, as the Big Ten. Uh, that's one story in this chapter. The other story uh, is there are two other stories actually. Uh, one is the periodic uh, concern uh, about the growth of athletics versus the priorities for academics on campus. Uh, and the, the chapter talks about two major uh, uh, events. One was the, uh, the Fullington Commission in uh, 1954, which just spent 30 months, 30 months, faculty committee, uh, reviewing uh, the, uh, the status of athletics and had some major recommendations for uh, the status of uh, athletes uh, and university engagement. Uh, the other was the Rose Bowl incident of 1961. That was the incident where the, uh, um, uh, the faculty, uh, faculty uh, athletic council uh, voted not to accept the uh, uh, invitation to the Rose Bowl. Uh, it looms large not only because of the extraordinary event, but there was a, uh, a fear among some, some people 
that the Board of Trustees would overrule the faculty. And if that happened, the whole principle of faculty control over athletics uh, would have been threatened. As, uh, fortunately, the trustees uh, accepted that, uh, uh, that decision not to participate in the, uh, in the girls' ball. Uh, the, uh, uh, the final section of this chapter has to do with women's athletics, uh, which is a very different story. The uh, uh, women's athletics uh, for up until about 1950, the theme in women's athletics is physical uh, uh, recreation, uh, uh, repurposes of uh, health, uh, but, the but the nature of uh, intercollegiate competition of uh, competing for the purpose of winning, as opposed to uh, 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 comradeship, uh, uh, athletic skills. You know, this is a concept that the public, uh, that's, that part of the public refuses to accept. Uh, and it's one that uh, uh, only develops in, uh, after World War II and receives uh, uh, final recognition uh, with, uh, especially with Title IX, but even before Title IX, in persona of uh, someone like uh, Phyllis Bailey, uh, who establishes uh, women's athletics on par with uh, the men's athletics. So uh, three different stories going on within that, uh, uh, that chapter. Uh, I have a uh, relatively brief chapter about uh, uh, traditions. Uh, as I said at the, uh, in my preface, uh, people feel differently about what's important to, uh, to the university. Certainly, it's, the traditions are uh, part of the color. I want to look not only at individual traditions, uh, but also in traditions with which we are familiar, but also some of the ones that, uh, in some cases, thankfully, are no longer around. Uh, but I was uh, looking for a quote to, to lead off this chapter. Uh, I uh, uh, found one. Uh, uh, in a uh, source that uh, librarians, uh, uh, fellow librarians would appreciate uh, are those familiar quotations. Uh, this is from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Every tradition grows ever more venerable. The more remote its origin, the more confused that origin is. The reverence due to it increases from generation to generation. The tradition finally becomes holy and inspires awe. There's a little uh, paragraph on, the, on traditions. People have disagreed about the value of campus traditions. David Starr Jordan, when president of Stanford University, called them, quote, the greatest instruments of culture in college, end quote. However, Woodrow Wilson, when president of Princeton University, is said to have remarked, quote, these sideshows have ruined the business of the big tent, uh, In 1929, OSU Lantern expressed regret that the university was losing one of its oldest traditions, the cane rush. There's a, quite a few pages on the, uh, on the cane rush, which was a bizarre tradition. Uh, uh, Landon said, we are sorry indeed to see another of Ohio State's old and memorable traditions go into oblivion, as have many others which were strictly observed, end quote. A few days later, however, the Landon published a letter from a student who challenged the value of traditions. Uh, keep in mind, this is the 1930s, and this is a time of many traditions uh, quote, we represent an age that is done with the sentimental customs of the past. Why should we continue on the Ohio State campus the more or less silly ideas of our predecessors? End of quote. Nevertheless, traditions are part of campus life, and anybody who sees commencement in the robes and hoods of many colors will agree that they add significantly to the color and pageantry of campus life. Uh, I have another chapter chapter eight, which talks about the, uh, uh, the development of the physical campus from farm to, uh, uh, to OSU campus. Begins with a quote from Professor Charles Chubb, I'll get into him in a minute. Quote, college years are the closing years of the most receptive period of life. This was said in 1910, it's the last today. Uh, let us send out our graduates to the busy walks of life with the undying memory of a beautiful university, with an insatiate desire to come back every year at commencement with her good classmates, to renew the friendship of her wide lawns, her shaded walks, and her splendid halls. Rather, rather nicely put. Uh, the story of how OSU grew from farm to a mega campus 
is more than simply counting the buildings and acreage. Fundamentally, it was and continues to be the work of people who had ideas about what a successful university should look like in the layout of the campus. At many times in its history, OSU engaged trustees, architects, staff, and community groups uh, in its planning efforts. Sometimes plans challenged to reflect, uh, changed me, to reflect differing visions of a learning environment. Ultimately, the goal uh, has always been to create a campus that is functional in meeting the diverse needs of a large institution and has memorable spaces and places that inspire, that welcomes solitary scholarship and contemplation, and also has picturesque opportunities for people to gather and exchange ideas. Uh, much of the book, much of this chapter deals with the history of the planning process. Uh, in the early planning process, uh, our first, uh, we relied heavily on uh, uh, trustees hired Herman uh, Hireling, who was a uh, landscape architect in Cincinnati, uh, who was specialized uh, in doing cemeteries. Uh, cemeteries were uh, uh, way, were, were the way landscape architects uh, made a living. So it was not unusual. Of course, the people who were really big name were the Olmsted brothers, and the universe, uh, and the Olmsted brothers were brought to campus by the trustees. Uh, one of their missions was to find a site for this library. Uh, let me read a, a bit. Uh, the Olmsted brothers recommended that the trustees develop the campus more systematically by earmarking areas for different studies or services. Within those areas, the university should erect buildings that were formal and large. I should mention in way of context, the previous concept was that the university would be uh, uh, a small village uh, with buildings uh, informal and scattered about. Uh, open lawns or green space should be identified in advance and protected from, building, uh, from planning for new buildings. Quote, keep permanently free from buildings a grand central lawn westerly from and perpendicular to High Street starting at the proposed grand entrance at 15th Avenue and ending at the proposed Great Library on the hill, this place, uh, south of University Hall. The width of the central lawn may be different at different places, but it should be uh, eventually be symmetrical or nearly so. Uh, this wasn't the first time that uh, the, uh, uh, this green space had been uh, uh, identified as a planning element. The uh, uh, Packard uh, Associates had done this uh, in the 1890s. Uh, Professor Chubb of Architecture, whom I uh, quoted uh, early in this chapter, is a uh, remarkably, or was a remarkably uh, acerbic uh, but influential uh, individual. Uh, he was highly critical of much of the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Olmsted Brothers uh, report. Uh, he, thought that he thought that University Hall was an ugly building that was built in the worst period of American architecture, which we referred to as the United States spirit of 1870. Uh, also, Chubb called for the eventual demolition of Hayes Hall, now one of OSU's architectural landmarks, which he described as an unsightly building. In general, Chubb despaired of the OSU campus, quote, I have now, like a doctor to his despairing patient, told you that our poor campus has most known architectural diseases. <laughs> so he's uh, extremely critical. He's also extremely influential because he makes the case that this campus is too large uh, not to have its own university architect, particularly with the building of the, uh, uh, of the campus. And in fact, the first architect, uh, uh, J Joseph Bradford, uh, is, uh, is hired with uh, Chubb serving on an advisory committee. So this talks about the, uh, the entire uh, uh, planning process, including uh, uh, plans uh, that uh, didn't come to fruition. Uh, my chapter nine uh, is an overview of uh, special places on the campus, uh, covers all the uh, historic buildings and, uh, 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 and such uh, sites as the, uh, uh, the Oval and Mirror Lake Hollow. Uh, and it begins with a, uh, uh, another quote uh, this time from Marcel Proust, the remembrance of things past, the places we have known do not only belong to the world of space in which we situate them, situate them for the sake of simplicity. In other words, there's an emotive uh, quality to, uh, uh, to physical space. As a campus, the, United, the Ohio State University has special places, buildings and spaces that inspire and linger in memory and that make the campus both unique and attractive. 
knowing these places, landmarks that they are, is a fundamental part of the campus experience. Learning about their history, how they began, how they changed, helps one appreciate these places even more. My final chapter uh, is a chronology uh, that is intended to, uh, to complement the fact that the arrangement of the book is largely topical, but I felt that anyone needs, every, every reader should have the opportunity to look at a, uh, a lengthy chronology, also illustrated, to uh, help navigate better through, uh, uh, through university history. So, uh, and my, uh, uh, my birth, not really a chapter, it's a bibliographic essay uh, with various sources I used. The book does include footnotes. One of the things that I, uh, uh, I despised about the, uh, the Pollard book for many years was that there aren't any footnotes in it. And as university archivist, I was always looking, okay, where did this come from? And where is the evidence uh, for this? So uh, hopefully uh, that, uh, uh, I've addressed that. So with that being said, uh, I've completed the, uh, the uh, formal part of, uh, I've also moved the floor here. Uh, uh, any uh, time for some questions? Yes? So Ray, what was this bizarre tradition that you mentioned that didn't survive? Oh, uh, the cane rush. Uh, that started off as a truly student-inspired uh, uh, tradition. It was the freshmen against the sophomores uh, involved a, uh, a cane that was hidden on the body of a sophomore. And the, uh, uh, the object was for the sophomore class to pass this uh, cane across a freshman goal. The freshman would seize the, uh, the, the body, if you will, of the sophomore uh, and wrestle the cane from them. Uh, uh, this thing, this thing became bizarre because it first started off as completely student uh, uh, and it was a point of conflict between the students and administration. And uh, it, it also, I also used it to illustrate the shrewdness of William Oxley Thompson because it had been a nuisance for previous presidents. You didn't know when it was going to begin. You didn't know how, it was, uh, how long it was going to last. You didn't know where it was going to happen. Uh, and invariably it was violent. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, so anyway, uh, I had been banned one year by a former president, uh, by former president Canfield, and uh, Thompson, much to the astonishment of the freshman and sophomore class, this was a year when freshmen and sophomores had their own class organizations, he went to the leaders of the freshman class and the leaders of the sophomore class and said, why don't you guys have a cane rush? And they were astonished. This was official sanction for what had previously been only a student event. Thompson had an agenda, and the agenda was that if he authorized them to have a cane rush, guess who made the rules? <laughs> guess who set the duration? Guess who set the place? The president. Uh, and so I use this as an example of the uh, 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 university institutional culture uh, officially taking responsibility, some would say seizing student activity. The cane rush lasted until the end of the Thompson regime. At one point, Thompson uh, was, was so happy with the cane rush uh, that uh, uh, he invited a news crew uh, to uh, film it for university publicity. Uh, and it never made it from the cutting room floor, the, fo the footage, because there was so much tearing of clothing uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, it couldn't be used for university promotion. But anyway, that's just one. I went on more than I, uh, than I should have, but it's, uh, it's an amazing tradition. Anybody else? Yes, Henry? Uh, my ignorance about the Morrill Act that uh, supposedly a land-grant institution, that's the word that's associated. Mm -hmm. The Morrill Act uh, was to finance institutions of higher education uh, that had programs in agriculture, engineering, and uh, military instruction. Uh, the Morrill Act did not require that, the, uh, that these be the only subjects uh, taught. But in order to make most efficient use, keep in mind this was an endowment. Now, there was another aspect of the Morrill Act that I should hasten to mention, that the endowment had to be kept intact. That's the principle of the endowment. So only revenue from the endowment could be used. And so 
uh, it provided an operating fund for these institutions, but in order to come up with the uh, large capital expenditures to buy land or build buildings that had to go elsewhere. The, the, uh, the fact that the Morrill Act said that the, uh, uh, this was a, uh, uh, that the principle could not uh, be diminished uh, meant that if the states in their administration of these funds uh, diminished the principle, how many of you have lost money on investments? Uh, it, then the states were required to make up what was lost. So there were some in Ohio who didn't trust government to manage money. So how did the land grant phrase get in there? Uh, because the, uh, uh, the land grant phrase is, is because public, federal lands, so typically west of the Mississippi, there were some in Ohio, uh, uh, the, the revenue from that was distributed to the states to be this endowment. And it was done proportionally, proportionate to their representation in Congress. So this was an endowment, and it was a handsome endowment. It was, uh, uh, but it varied from state to state, of course. Uh, Ohio's was about 330,000, which exceeded the endowment of any private university at the time. So much competition for that share of endowment. Yes? I wonder if you could give us some insights into the way you address the uh, student uh, uh, demonstrations of the 1970s. Uh, well, the, the demonstrations, uh, I, uh, uh, a good source for the uh, official view, uh, official history of that is uh, Weisenberger's book of the Fawcett Years. There's a, there's a whole chapter on the, uh, the demonstrations. I uh, added to that somewhat, but didn't rely very heavily on the, uh, the Francis Weisenberger. Uh, uh, he was university historian in the 1960s. And, uh, 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 you know, the, the uh, chapter focuses on the, uh, the social context, uh, the war, uh, women's rights, uh, civil rights, uh, and uh, the unhappiness of, uh, of many students with all of a sudden being in a, uh, uh, a university with red tape. You've heard of red tape before. Uh, so uh, multiple sources of uh, anger. I was, but you know, that doesn't make me a turning point. What were the consequences? And it was the consequences that I was most interested in. Yeah. Uh, I was really interested in the, in the first chapter. I wasn't aware of how early the uh, conflict between agricultural interests and liberal arts were at that time. And even though in 1887, agriculture seemed to have lost out. I mean, 25 years later, even uh, Joseph Kennedy was saying, millions for mature, not one cent for literature. So it went on. Uh, it, 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 it did go on. Uh, Keep in mind that uh, uh, agriculture, even now, is a significant force in the uh, state legislature, much more so uh, through uh, apportionment, if you will, uh, in, uh, in that period. There were two issues uh, uh, that annoyed the uh, uh, agriculture was one that was also connection with the chapel issue. Uh, at one point, one of our former trustees was really upset with the university uh, said that the university had gotten away as far away from uh, God as it had from agriculture. And that was the pressing issue, that referred to the pressing issue of compulsory chapel. How new was this new university? Well, it was customary in universities at the time to have compulsory chapel. Our faculty and our president, President Wharton, uh, and President Walter Quincy Scott objected to it, felt that it was not appropriate for a, uh, for a new university, a new secular university, but it also, that also conflicted with the uh, uh, concept of higher education, a popular view of higher education at the time, namely that one cannot simply educate uh, a person with the, uh, without also educating their spirit. Uh, it was called uh, Scottish moral philosophy. Uh, and uh, you know, the chapel fit right in. And the person who dissolved the chapel a very nasty issue. The person who solved the chapel in his very first year, William Oxley Thompson. And, you know, one of the things that I hope comes out of this book is the enormous respect for the uh, skills uh, of uh, William Oxley Thompson, for whom his library came. Yes, Lisa. Ray, through your many years of being university archivist, we all know that you're very well versed in the history of the university. So doing the research for this book, what were some of the 
was uh, 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 you know, the broad scope I was certainly familiar with. I didn't realize that, uh, for example, uh, the uh, University Hall, which we have as a replica, uh, that the bricks that were used to build the replica of University Hall were made by the same company that was responsible for the, uh, making the first bricks. So uh, hopefully uh, those bricks will last even longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because uh, University Hall was a uh, uh, was a health hazard uh, uh, and it was torn down in the, in the 1960s. So that's just that's just one example, uh, and uh, uh, you know numerous other uh, uh, small details. Certainly, I was familiar with the uh, with, a, with a broader picture. More often, it was not a case of uh, uh, of including details, but deciding which to exclude because they did not want this to be an encyclopedia, didn't want it to be a reference work, we had that already, uh, but rather a work that is readable and provides an orientation to the history of the university. So hopefully I've accomplished that. Anybody else? Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>